So praxis for me is where I experience the change I want to see. Hey everyone, welcome back to Zoe's Daughters, the podcast where we share Black feminist perspectives and close read pop culture and other social topics that affect Black folks. I'm Alyssa and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hey y'all, my name is Brendan and I use she, her, hers pronouns. And so today we have part four of our series called I Conversations, where we ask Black feminist anthropologists five questions about their lives and careers. And so we had the esteemed honor of speaking with Dr. Yolanda Moses, which was deeply motivating. And I'm not going to lie, it got me thinking I might actually be able to do a little something with the academic girlies, but we'll see. Um, We'll see. Dr. Moses is a professor of anthropology at the University of California, Riverside, and former associate vice chancellor of diversity and inclusion. Dr. Moses's research focuses on the broad question of the origins of social inequality, exploring gender and class disparities in the Caribbean, East Africa, and the United States. More recently, her research has focused on issues of diversity and change in universities and colleges in the United States, India, Europe, and South Africa. She is the co-author of the book, How Real is Race? A source book on race, culture, and biology published in 2007. She has worked on several national higher education projects funded by the National Science Foundation and the Ford Foundation. And in 2003, she became the first woman president of City University of New York City College. Hey. She previously served as chair of the board of the American Association of Colleges and Universities, president of the American Anthropological Association, and president of the American Association for Higher Education. Like, what hasn't she done in the academy is the question. <laughs> what, what and wow. What and wow. This <laughs> what was such, wow. a, such a great conversation. I found it inspiring that she lives her values and principles. And you mentioned while we were talking that some of the initiatives she's, she started are still benefiting the lives of Black anthropology students. And I appreciate that she took on these positions of power, not for her own ego, but to material materially improve the lives of her students and those who would come after her. So she models change instead of just talking about it. Mm-hmm. And she's still, she's still doing this. I saw a video of her in November giving her support for the students striking at UC. And she was out there taking down all of the arguments that the administration was making. She was like, I used to be an administrator. I know what's going on. And this is what the administration should be doing. Because we know that there are a lot of faculty who would not deign to get mixed up in the first world problems of students because, quote, at least you have stipends. Mm. 
On a more personal note, I was really, and you all will hear her talk about this, but I was loving her grandmother sweater because I had on my godmother sweater. And so I liked that little ode to kinship. Mm. And it came up even earlier because it turns out you all might be, there's a chance that you're related. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that, to- that totally wouldn't surprise me because she she reminded me a little bit of you, the way she described anthropology and her choice of words around coalition and collaboration instead of solidarity. I was like, do y'all share a brain? Did you talk beforehand? No. What's going on? <laughs> well, I mean, we did we did text a little bit beforehand, but that was just to coordinate. <laughs> but it was a little scary. Like, I was like, wow. what, are, what are those? Just start on us, Brendan, talking about, oh, I'm texting mm. Yolanda T. Moses. <laughs> well, you know, we that was just to coordinate the interview. Hopefully, though. We can be real life cousins or something. Um, but <laughs> I I was really like, wow, like I feel like she thinks a lot like me. And it was just very encouraging to hear her tell stories of all the work that she's done. And y'all, she's very candid. I'm one mm-hmm. of the more candid Libras I've ever met in my life. I'm just gonna <laughs> put that out there. Um and I was like, okay, so it's possible to teach, to have a family, to shift institutions, which I think is something that a lot of academics, you know, pretend like they can't do, and also create great scholarship if you choose. And y'all will hear her talk about her dissertation a little bit, but I think that she was really understating the importance of it, like as a mm-hmm. work. Like she was really doing some feminist iconic work in her department like she was writing about women like especially thinking about you know the time right in the 70s she's writing about black women in anthropology and she's not writing you know these manuscript (laughs) manuscript length you know pathological shit about their maternal practices like you're definitely shifting paradigms in the discipline so I'm just truly in awe and I know I say that every week I really do but being able to connect with Dr. Moses was a true gift um and especially learning that we might be cousins like (laughs) I was like oh that's so cool uh and for those of you who don't know my father's last name um was Moses and he passed away in uh 2021 so any connection to him is just makes my heart very happy. And so to know that she and I actually might be related and I've done some investigation and it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. The cities where my father's family are from and, and her mother's family, they're fairly close. So mm. not impossible. Um, but what that really would mean for me, right, is that I'm related to a Black feminist anthropologist who's bout it, bout it. And oh, that's oh, important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was like speaking to the anthropology version of Angela Davis, mm-hmm. just living in her praxis. So, without further ado, here's our eye conversation with Dr. Yolanda T. Moses. Okay, Dr. Moses, thank you so much for joining us. We're really happy to have you here today to talk to us, answer some of our eye conversation questions. Your work over the years has explored gender and class in the Caribbean and Africa, as well as diversity and change in universities around the world using a variety of ethnographic and survey methods. And it's made an incredible impact on the field of the discipline. Um, You're even awarded 
some awards through the triple A to that effect. Mm -hmm. So personally, I have had a few different careers since I finished my bachelor's degree. And when I get worried about changing course and doing things that are off the path that's laid out for you, I always keep in mind that you can't connect the dots looking forward. So looking back on your body of work, what was your central preoccupation or the overarching question you were trying to answer through your research? Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting question. And because I have been in this uh, field, I got my PhD in 1976. So I have been um, thinking about issues for a very long time. And for me, the big overarching question I had going into anthropology is to understand the origins of social inequality. Now, I didn't want to be an archaeologist, but my work on the race project, which I'll talk about, uh, came about looking at the intersections of cultural anthropology and, and biological anthropology. So I did in a, a little bit get into archaeology, but the origins of social inequality in complex societies, because I just wondered, having grown up and come of age in the US during the civil rights movement, were there other places that did this differently than we mm -hmm. did? And if they did, what were the outcomes and how could we learn from this? And I wanted to get outside of the US experience because it just seemed so um, ubiquitous. I mean, mm -hmm. everywhere you looked at the time I was coming of age, there was something going on around um, trying to undo inequality. So for me, the question was, where did this come from? And I think it also inspired my teaching because I have always taught um, history and theory classes, and I have always um, tried to get my students to understand that because these systems are socially constructed, as hard as it may seem, they can be unconstructed. Mm -hmm. That is, they're not fixed in, in nature. So what we're seeing today is not necessarily what has to be. And so the questions we start asking, or I start asking, were about uh, in whose interest is it to maintain this kind, these kinds of systems of inequality? And initially, um, I started talking about um, how does equality come about? And then I realized that equality doesn't deal with inequity. Mm -hmm. And so I started focusing on what would equity look like. And that uh, uh, pushed me into the area of political economy. And that was that's one of the uh, areas that that uh, I'm interested in uh, historically, philosophically is uh, the whole relationship of capital and society and culture. So um, that is um, 
that was one of my uh, central occupations. And as you said, the other thing I looked at since my life has been in the academy is what what does the academy look like through the lens of um, anthropology, looking at the origin, the origins and the systems that and the barriers that create or don't create opportunities for everyone to participate in the system. And you can see from my CV that I've I've done a lot of work on diversity and inclusion and and I have always been a person that works at the intersections of theory and practice. So praxis for me is where I experience the change I want to see. And so for me, I got really tired as a faculty member of being told what I couldn't, couldn't do, couldn't, couldn't do, and decided that the next level of power for me was to be a department head. And then I became a dean, and then I became a provost, mm -hmm. and then I became a university president and found that the systems were barriers were still there, mm -hmm. but you could understand better the levers of change and how to use them. Uh, so for me, it's always been about the origins of um, social inequality, the barriers of, of change and how to uh, push back against those in very concrete ways. Thank you. Sorry, I was just thinking that's something, the the idea that things that are constructed can be deconstructed is something Brendan always says is, is why she was drawn to anthropology. So I was gonna I'm, say that. <laughs> I'm so like, I'm so fascinated. And, and um, another thing that one of our professors I don't know if she said if he said it to you, Brennan, but he said it to me that because I don't research where I'm from, which would be Jamaica, he said, you know, we always have to leave to to come back home kind mm. of thing. So um, the fact that you spent some of your early early career outside of the U.S. in order to come back home and and make change in an, in place is is yeah. a kind of thread that I'm seeing as well. Mm -hmm. But I always, when I talk about what anthropology did for me as a young, uh, young Black woman in Lee Baker's anthropology of race class as a sophomore in college and the realization that, oh, the life that I lived as a Black girl in South Carolina, somebody somewhere, somebody's somewhere decided that, oh, this is how Black people are supposed to live. And that means that we as a Black people can do something about it. Um it just it just really opened the world for me. So to hear you say it and, and very similar to how I <laughs> to how I say it when I talk to students is um it it really just bring warms my my heart. Um and one thing that just as we've like heard from the breadth of your career, right, is that you as a scholar have experienced lots of change and lots of growth. And one of the things that we think about as graduate students is that the things that we write today might not be what we want to say when we get to senior faculty or provost levels. I don't know if I could ever be a university president. Um, <laughs> 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 your, <laughs> your, 
your work has such a, like I said, like such a depth and a breadth to it. And we were just really wondering, are there things that you've written that you've looked back on and wanted to change? Or like if you could revise any of your published pieces, like which one would you change and how would you change it? Hmm. Well, well, like I said, the the earlier work that I talked about equality, right? I would change I would change the higher ed stuff to equity because it's not enough to get to the into the institution if the institution is still creating barriers that are going to inhibit your success and so rather than adding uh, students and uh, uh, diverse students women students whoever it is you're trying to use to diversify and stirring a pot that already is uh, structured in a way that first of all, you're not supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. And secondly, nothing changes other than your presence, mm -hmm. then you're setting people up for failure. And unless we tackle those structures of inequality, which are very hard to tackle, then, you know, things are really going to change. Students are gonna come and go, faculty are gonna come and go. And we see that revolving door policy on just about every campus across the United States. And the blame is put on the students mm -hmm. and the faculty and not on the institution. So my writing would be a lot more uh, radical in that sense by saying, oh, it's everybody's responsibility to do this work. I would say, here are the structures, the barriers that prevent students of color, faculty of color from being successful. And it starts with their own colleagues in their mm -hmm. departments who don't understand their work and who don't think it's important to understand their work. And I say, when I go to talk to universities and colleges as a diversity uh, consultant, I say, if you're not ready to transform yourself into a different kind of institution, don't bother mm. to do this work. And they kind of look at me, you know, like, oh, but we want to have diversity but do you want to do the work that it's going to take to create environments where students and faculty are going to be successful? And that's an educational excellence issue. It's not a, I want to feel good because I have minorities on campus kind of issue. And are you ready to deal with their issues they bring to you? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the reckoning that institutions are going through now after the murder of George Floyd on television, right? I mean, even at my university, which is um, uh, University of California, it has a lot of, you know, uh, diversity, blah, 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 blah. The institution itself has not changed. They've added more programs. And I said, adding programs to existing structures is not going to do it. You've got to change the way the institution conceptualizes itself and runs. 
and most campuses aren't ready to do that. So yes, my diversity work. Now going back, 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 back to um, my field work, and I did my early field work on an island called Montserrat. That my analyses were very uh, two dimensional. Mm. That is, I looked at uh, remittances, I looked at status of women, and at that time in the 70s, I will tell you all this, and I, I have said it to some of my students, I had to change my dissertation topic because when I got to the island of Montserrat, I thought it was going to be like Jamaica and Dominica and Grenada, Grenada, where these people wanted to become independent, right? And they were struggling with what that meant. Montserrat the prime minister said, oh, no, we don't want to be independent. We, we, we want to stay a colony. And I went, what? <laughs> is, I said, I, mean, I said, what? This is going to mess up my decision. <laughs> and so uh, I changed my topic to focus on the status of women in remittance societies, where the men go out and, and send money back and what happens to their status. Do they take on the uh, leadership roles where the vacancies have been left? And, and I found out, no, they didn't. But that's one piece of it. The first piece is that my dissertation committee asked me, I was at, I got my PhD at UC Riverside too. My PhD committee asked me can you do a whole dissertation on women? That's what they asked me. Mm. And I said, yes. So this was in 1975, 75. I started sending them articles mm -hmm. to read my male professors. So it was like, it was a whole new environment for them. So I was lucky to get my, I was lucky to get through with that mm -hmm. topic. And so, yes, I'd go back and talk about intersectionality, right? I'd go back and talk about racial capitalism. I would go back and do the things that I understand better today. So... That's a, a roundabout way of saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So to me, it's like you know the assumption that you can't write about women is and black women. You know, mm -hmm. it's so it's well, you can write about black women. Anthropology's way of writing about black women historically has been you know geared towards understanding maternity, right, and, and all those other things. So mm. I could. Yeah, I could see why they were struggling to see you trying to write something about women and leadership and things like that. And, and, and I was also trying to do a class analysis because mm -hmm. I was also trying to do a class analysis because all the literature in the Caribbean at that time was about uh, Black women having kids out of wedlock, mm -hmm. and blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. And I was going, wait a minute, I come from a community 
in Compton, California, where Black women who are working class raise families and they do all kinds of, have all kinds of permutations of what family means in order to do that. Mm -hmm. So what I did was to look at a working class women and middle-class women, black women, these are all black women on the, on the, in the aisle. And I found out that the working class women were using all kinds of economic strategies to make ends meet and were very conscious about the decisions they were making about who they were going to engage with and that being married often did not provide them with the resources they needed. Whereas being single, they had many different sources because marriage at that time meant there were certain behaviors that women had to, uh, performances that women had mm -hmm. to go through in order to be respectable. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was to show the juxtaposition that these women are not promiscuous. These women are making economic decisions that work for them. And they're very, they are very conscious of what they're doing. And it has nothing to do with morality. It has to do with economics. And so for me, that was, I, I just felt that was a contribution right, to that narrative that was just, that was like, well, why can't you be respectable and be married when you have kids? Well, I'm living with my mother. I have a boyfriend, might even have two. Period. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm having my kids, which I love, and they're, they're being taken care of. They have uncles and, you know, uh, uh, all kinds of grandfathers and all kinds of people, and it's cool. I, you know, that's the way it is. So it was fun. I mean, it was fun. And I went back and looked at that thing and it's so two-dimensional, right? And I said, oh, I should do something with that. But at that time, that was what I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you were also in this position where you were having to educate your committee about, oh. about your topic. And I think that's something that, black folks who study black folks have yes. trouble with in the academy mm -hmm. and so of course you were talking about the reckoning that's happening I mean the reckoning people believe it's been reckoned mm -hmm. already <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know one of the reforms reforms will say is happening is is hiring diverse faculty but, yes. but not really changing any of the any of the structural issues that that impede them from succeeding and continuing to work there. So we kind of end up with this turn and burn of quote unquote diverse faculty. Yes. But, and, but... and it's, it's debilitating mm -hmm. for folks and they asked me in my role, because at UC Riverside, I was for a while the chief diversity officer for the university. And I would understand, I get the real reasons why they were leaving, right? Because of, they say publicly one thing. And I would relay that information to the cabinet and say, 
you've got to talk this. And then I also would talk to the deans. And the deans would say, well, you know, the departments have their autonomy and what have you. And I would go talk to the department head. And some of them were just, you know, they had the power to sort of say yes and no mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. All, all kinds of things. And if they didn't understand things, then uh, that's where that's where it stopped because the senior administrators didn't want to interfere with faculty autonomy. Mm. Yes. So, so I got I got tired of that. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that. I know that's right. <laughs> and yet in the face of, you know, all of these all of these structural barriers, you have had several notable accomplishments as we mentioned earlier. You you know, your work has been recognized, celebrated. Uh, I read that you were active in the civil rights movement with SNCC you know, president of the Anthropological American Anthropological Association. And in 1993, you became the first woman to be appointed president of CUNY City College of New York. Your work is ongoing. I saw you're out there supporting the the student, the striking students at UC right now. So we absolutely applaud you. Mm -hmm. And so some of the things that we're most recognized and celebrated for are not always what we most value about ourselves. So we would like for you to tell us for the record, what is for you the highlight of your life and or your career? Well, the highlight of my life uh, is the fact that I've been married to my husband for 50 years. Uh, My second husband. I got married young. (laughs) That didn't work out. Because he told me he didn't want me to go to grad school because I'd be smarter than him. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's Mm -mm. a wrap. Mm -mm. (laughs) I I told him I was smarter than him already. Period. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) So anyway, that's one. And then the second one, I said, I have two daughters and five grandkids. Yeah. And I have on my grandmother's sweatshirt (laughs) with their names on it. Oh, Oh, that's so adorable. And for me... The fact that I was able to have both a career and a family meant I married the right person. <laughs> mm-hmm. Finally, got it right, right? And uh, so that is, you know, this is a wonderful job, uh, profession, occupation. But in the end, that's what it is. And and if I needed to, I could get a job doing something else, especially at this point in my life, but I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I want to be doing. Uh, so that's number one. The second thing I think has been leadership positions that allow me to model the kind of change mm. that needs to happen. And uh, in the university, becoming all those positions I named for you, at each of those positions, I was able to instill new programs to bring in more diversity and to put systems in place so that whoever we brought in could be successful. Mm-hmm. And I was where the book stopped. And I remember as provost stopping a search that the School of Business had uh, for a new dean. 
And I wanted to hire a woman. She was the best candidate. And the senior group of senior white males came to my office and told me, if I didn't go along with what they wanted, they were going to um, leave the committee. And I said, you know what? These guys, don't, they don't know who they're talking to. I might smile like I'm smiling at you guys, right? And I said, fine. I'll reconstitute and put another committee together. And they said to me, can you do that? You don't have the right to do that. I said, I'm the provost. Those guys went to the president and told him what happened. And because he had been a senior officer in the military at some point, chain of command, he said, that's her, that's her job. That's her job. So I think they double thought it. <laughs> <laughs> had to double back on that one. Mm -mm. But if I hadn't been in that position, that wouldn't happen. So each of those positions I'm in. Now, when I was president, I ran into some political shit. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> it was all good. <laughs> in New York City. I don't need to tell you guys, right? about that, because you're at Columbia. But um, Rudolph Giuliani was terrible to City University, hated City University, because mm -hmm. it was producing young people and people, professionals who were challenging a lot of the stuff that was happening in the city. And when, um, I, and this is a part of why I left. Um, he told, he was running for senator of the New York and he had to drop out of the race eventually, but he was running for Senate. And I had asked Hillary Clinton, who was first lady at that time to, be, to come and be the keynote speaker at our graduation. And he told me I couldn't invite her. And I said, <laughs> I'm the president of this university and the this is who the students want to invite. He's, and, and, you know, it's sort of like, he couldn't do it up front, you know, mm -hmm. but he made it really difficult afterwards. And uh, the, the board had changed in the uh, eight years I was there from Democrat to Republican. Mm. So it was, the, I ran into politics, right? I mean, that got in the way of me wanting to do the kind of education that I wanted to do. So I just said, I can't work in this kind of environment because they don't really want the kind of change that, that I want to do. So I decided that was time for me to leave. So that's when I did. Now, the other thing that I, I did was when I was president of AAA, uh, I wanted that job. I mean, I didn't really want the job, but I had been president of the 
Council on Anthropology and Education. I was on the executive board. And because I had had administrative experience, it that I had a group of people that come to me and say, would you please stand for election? And I said, only if I can do things that are going to change the organization. So one of the things I did was to say, how do we get, how do we become part of a, the public conversations that are going on in this country around mm -hmm. issues that we have expertise in? And so there was a lot of talk in the country. Uh, Bill Clinton was still president. Uh, around race and reconciliation and, and all that kind of stuff. And he had put together this group of people that were going around doing listening sessions around the country. And, but they weren't doing any, they weren't educating people. They were just, it was just like grievance. And so I said, well, why don't we teach America what race is and what race isn't? so that there can be a conversation when people do have conversations about race, they're, they're accurate mm -hmm. <laughs> or as accurate as they can be, right? And so we got a grant from the National Science Foundation. Oh no, first we got a grant from Ford, from the Ford Foundation to, because, um, do you have you heard of that video called Race, the Power of an Illusion? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, they were funding that one. And they said, oh, we don't want you to do a, a documentary because we're doing a documentary. Why don't you do an exhibit? And I thought, I don't think about exhibits. <laughs> and so they gave us a million dollars. Um, then we got a grant from the National Science Foundation for 2.5 to talk about science in the exhibit. And so that's how we put the uh, race exhibit together. It took us mm -hmm. a couple of years to even conceptualize it. And the Smithsonian didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And then we went to the uh, do you guys know Alika Wally? Do you know her name? Mm -mm. She's a, a curator at the uh, Chicago Film Museum, right? And she held a workshop. Ford gave some money. She held a workshop and brought together curators, people who had done exhibits that were controversial around the country together. And the Science Museum of Minnesota, the NSF told us to look at because they were a science museum that had done very complex science projects. So we ended up going with the Science Museum of Minnesota. They had to hire a diverse staff, which they didn't have, but they understood the concepts of, of science. And we were gearing this for school kids because we had written off the adults. We said, these people, they go get it. It's going to be, it's going to be the kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, that exhibit ended up, and you all know that I, maybe, you know, the story of it. It's still, it circulated for almost 14 years. And it, it was, went to over 60 cities. There were three different versions and I'd say a million and a half people, at least were documented, have seen have seen it. 
It is the third exhibit is now in uh, North Carolina and they have asked me if I would help them um, renovate it so that it will circulate around North Carolina. So that'll be another project. And I started minority fellowship there within the AAA and the board was saying, well, why do we need a minority fellowship? <laughs> so I had to educate them about why we needed minority fellowship. And so those are the things that I've done. That is, and to know that the programs that you put in place are still working within these institutions um, really speaks a lot to what you said about your commitment to actually trying to change these structures versus just, you know, create a program, slap a bandaid on things. And like my, one of my really close friends is, was the 2022 minority diverse, like the minority fellowship winner. So to like, to know that your legacy is still, benefiting black students um it's just so wonderful um and our audience is in a large part undergraduate and graduate students who will be taking their anthropology training to the workforce to the academy and beyond and so i find that people who study anthropology typically want to have an impact on the world much like the kind that you have had but really have no clue about how to go about it um, and you've served as a consultant for national and international level education pro- projects. Like you've worked in universities and departments and shaping them into being better places for students of color. And you still find time to mentor an ABA. I remember um, when I went to AAA in 2017 and folks were just like, yeah, uh, Dr. Yolanda Moses is a wonderful mentor, wonderful. Um, so it was just I'm like now just in such awe, I'm like, how do you find the time? <laughs> how do you find the time to do it? Um, but really we we want to know what is one piece of advice that you would give to those who want to thrive and make change in their chosen field? Can I give you more than one piece? Of course. I'll make it <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> um I'd say, first of all, just in terms of, of, of a trajectory, you have to think that you're going to be in this work for the long haul, mm-hmm. that this is not going to be overnight. It's, it's, it's going to be for systemic change to happen. It's going to be long. It's going to be long term. So don't get frustrated, which means you also have to be strategic. That is. You can't tackle everything. What are, what are the things that you feel you have an affinity for that you can work on? Mine is one of the things that I, I do well is to um, coach faculty and students how to get from one level to the next level to the next level by understanding the systems that you have to navigate and what you need to, to, you know, to move from one level to the next level and to have arguments in place when you are challenged, mm. right? So, so that's being strategic. Uh, the other thing I've learned over time is to look for the levers of change. That is, where are the trigger points? Where are the opportunities? For example, 
when new people come in, like new um, uh, deans or new provosts or new presidents, they are looking for opportunities to do things to make themselves look good. So if you have a project or a program that you want to get done, that's also going to make them look good, then that is an opportunity for that change to happen, right? It's sort of like, but because I have been in all those positions, I understand that, but you still can understand the levers of change. Um, and then you got to be ready for the opportunity when it comes. So I always had two or three projects, right? That I wanted to get done. And sometimes it wasn't the right opportunity for the one I wanted to do the first one, but the second or the third one, like, you know, bringing in uh, visiting professors or term professors versus a tenure track position got the door open, right? And so it's like having two or three uh, projects all at the ready and um, taking advantage of opportunities like uh, like the uh, George, George Floyd's uh, murder. We have been trying to get a black study program going in our university for a long time. And we had ethnic studies with all the different groups in one department and that was not working real well. So it provided an opportunity for the administration to say, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? Right. And and we had the program uh, ready. Now, the problem is the academic senate passed it 300 and something to zero. But the dean has not given the money and mm -hmm. the program. So that's the next thing that has to happen. How do we get the dean, who is a African-American male, mm. on board? <laughs> <laughs> that's another whole story. That's all. Yeah, whole that's, that's another, another thing. story. That is another whole story. <laughs> Well, definitely let us and our our listeners know if there's anything that we can we can do to help push that forward. If we can provide okay. support, shame, anything needed. <laughs> uh, yes, I will do. I will do that. Um, so uh, that would be my advice. I mean, those are those are from my life experiences and today. That you know the. Sometimes the the engagement of people in groups and coalitions is often short lived, mm -hmm. and you have to you have to be in it for the long run. But good collaborations and good coalitions is what is going to help help build the power base that we need. I mean, a faculty student coalition is a very powerful coalition mm -hmm. uh, across a lot of different dimensions if it's done right. And if, you know, students are paying tuition, administrators listen to mm -hmm. them or can listen to them. Let me say that. 
Yeah. No, this is great. I I really appreciate you talking about how um, you've taken on these roles to model change and, and continued working on different projects that would actually institute change that would be long-term. And I think Brendan pointed that out really well with, with the minority fellowship at the AAAs. And so throughout this series, we are thinking about legacy and how we're talked about by others as well. So for example, when we think of Zora Neale Hurston, we often think of her as avant-garde, uh, iconoclastic, and genius. Those are three words that are repeated so often. Mm. And one thing that we've wondered is whether or not she would identify with those words or recognize herself in those words. So we want to make sure that history gets it right for you. <laughs> what three words would you use to describe your career as anthropologist, professor, mentor, public educator, and intellectual Black feminist? Ooh. Let's see. I had, I'd say visionary mm. because I see what's not there, but could be. Mm. And, and I'm always striving for that. Um, I'm very passionate and believe in it. I believe in the work that I do with all of my being and it comes across whether positive or negative to, <laughs> to powers that be. And I understand that none of this work happens alone. So I would say I'm a strategic collaborator. Mm. Uh, and, I, and a strategic collaborator who, uh, who understands power and power systems mm. and how they work. And I I think of myself as be the change. I'm, I, you know, that's, I, I model it because every major thing I've done, it's, someone says, well, we've never done that before, or you can't do that. Mm. And, and I put myself in situations where I show, yes, you can. That is so, that's so inspiring and really just so, Amazing. Um, I wanted this is a kind of an aside question. I've okay. been trying to figure out what your and I listen know exactly what I'm about to ask you. Um, I've been trying to figure out what your zodiac sign is this entire time. Are you <laughs> yes. Um what do you think it is? When you talk about being a visionary and believing that things could actually be there. But then you also talk about putting in the work. It makes me feel like earth sign realm, like a Taurus or Capricorn or a Virgo. I was thinking Taurus. I am on the cusp of uh, Virgo Libra. That's what, see, and that's, I was like, because <laughs> putting in the work, that's a very Virgo energy. Tauruses, they don't like to do the work. Um, but <laughs> yes, are you on the, uh, Virgo side or the Libra side of the cusp? I'm 27th of September. Wow. Almost. I was feeling it. I was feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say thank you so much, uh, Dr. Moses, for spending this time with us and answering our questions and sharing so much of your wisdom and it's been lovely to bask in it. Um, and to know that we could possibly be cousins has also 
make well, yeah, happy. That, <laughs> that my my father's name was Henry. Henry, Henry Moses. Henry Moses. But I really think that we might be like cousins. That'd be cool. Well, you check it out and let me know. Yes, ma'am. I will. Is it okay if I text you? <laughs> be like, I think I found it. <laughs> of course, you can. Yeah, do right. that. Okay. Yes. Yes. And, thank you uh, so much. Oh. oh, you're welcome. And thank you for your work. This is great. See, at the time when I was coming through, there was no internet. There was no Facebook. I and and my. Uh, uh, dissertation was typed on a typewriter with um, what do you call it? That blue paper, that ink on it that you type over, and it. Oh, the carbon copy. Carbon paper. Yes. <laughs> I mean, just think what I could have done if I had all this technology back then. <laughs> <laughs> but I have it now. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Stay in touch. Yes, we will. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this conversation and the series because we most certainly did. After we wrapped with Dr. Moses, I told Brendan how happy I am that we are able to do this. I mean, really connecting and being taught by these icons of anthropology is just a testament to how much this podcast has brought to us. And even though our time with them was relatively brief, I feel like I took away a lot from these conversations, Mm -hmm. especially about what the possibilities of what a life dedicated to service can look like within academia. And so what I said is these women ran so we could soar. And what are we going to make possible for the generation of scholars that follow us? I think that's a key question, uh, especially now as there are, you know, increasing numbers of Black scholars in the academy, right? What are we going to do to ensure that we are not just walking in through the door and shutting the door behind us? And these icons that we've talked with for this series have really shown what it's like to not just open the door, but like create a new whole fucking structure, building Mm -hmm. entrance um Mm -hmm. and it just made me think like I can only imagine how empowered we as a collective would be if we spent more time talking to our elders like they hold so much wisdom and power and they can truly help us navigate all the shit that we have to go through in life especially (laughs) this academic shit um <laughs> and if we really listen to our elders and, and talk to them right, we would be unstoppable i have left every single one of these conversations feeling strong in my blackness feeling strong in my black womanness in my black feminist bag you know in my black feminist hey. anthropologist <laughs> bag um mm-hmm. and i really feel like my duty to change the world came from somewhere, right? That I just wasn't plopped onto this planet and I'm the only one trying to run against the current um, and that I didn't have to accomplish that work of changing the world alone. Um, How inspiring is that? Just inspiring and humbling. Thank y'all for listening. Even if one of you 
just feels my churchy voice, even if just one of you feels blessed (laughs) by this series, let us know what touched you. Were you feeling empowered after listening to these women talk about their lives? I know for sure that I'm like, yeah, I can do what I want, what the fuck I want to do because they've done it. Right. But that's all we have for y'all today. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Alyssa James and Brendan Tynes and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council, the Heyman Center Public Humanities Graduate Fellowship, and donations from listeners just like you. Thank you all for your support. If you like this episode, if you like this series, please share it via social media, WhatsApp, or Morse code. I don't know how you would do that, but do it. (laughs) (laughs) We would love to hear what you have to say. As Brennan was saying, if you were touched, if you felt blessed, if you enjoyed it, let us know your thoughts. So follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. For transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or become a patron to access exclusive content, visit our website, zorasdaughters.com. And just so you all know, we will be taking a break. A break. Because weekly, we blessed you with weekly episodes. So we need a break. And we will see you in March. Vague. A vague in March. (laughs) Well, as we rest and restore, we want to remind you all, last and definitely not least, that we must remember that we must take care of ourselves and each other. Bye. Bye.